Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Today we're talking to Dr. Stephen Vetrano. Dr. Vetrano, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Steve Vetrano. I'm a local emergency physician here in Mercer County. Uh, I've been in practice uh, ever since 2002, um, concomitantly in medical school. Uh, I've maintained my EMT certification. I'm still certified or licensed, I should say now, that's what they're calling it, as a uh, emergency medical technician. I basically put those two skills together as an EMT and as an ER doc to serve as a medical director for most of the EMS and fire agencies here in Mercer County. What, um, what brought you into the world of EMS? What, what made you decide you wanted to do that? Um, I have to go back to my dad. Uh, uh, probably about, I don't know, 50 years ago now, he was a dental technician in the Navy, um, which that rating doesn't exist anymore. They're all hospital corpsmen. Um, and when he got out, unfortunately, uh, while his hospital corpsmen folks all became physician's assistants, PAs. There was no equivalent for him back in civilian life. So he went back to work uh, with my grandfather, uh, maintaining a small little scrap metal and antique yard. Uh, they would basically buy and sell, um, you know, use furniture, sell that at some of the uh, flea markets and collect metals and basically would come out here to sell them the places uh, around here, um, you know, the larger uh, recycling dealers. Um, um, but I can still, you know, hear him in my head saying, go to school, get an education and don't do what I do. And, uh, his, his experience with, with dental, uh, pushed me more towards the, the medical fields. Uh, thought about dentistry, thought about pharmacy, um, eventually settled on uh, a career in medicine. Uh, once I decided that I became the family doctor, even though I, was freshman in college. So I figured, yeah, I know. Right. So I figured, well, I maybe better learn something about the profession I was going into. So I enrolled in a course in college, uh, safety 202. It was an American, uh, red cross, uh, first aid and adult CPR course, And that, that literally was my introduction into the world of medicine through emergency. Um, I then found out that instead of uh, having to recertify CPR every year, I could become an EMT and recertify every three years. So that's kind of much easier to me as a medical student. Of course, I didn't know at the time, as a college student, excuse me, of course, I didn't know at the time that uh, I would still need that CPR card every one year to <laughs> maintain my EMT. But, oh, well, uh, I became an EMT and just sort of gravitated toward the emergency field. Um, once I got into medical school and did my rotations, uh, I liked family medicine. I liked geriatrics. And then I did my first ER rotation. Oddly enough, it was here in Mercer County as an elective. I rotated at what was then Helene Fold Hospital, uh, mostly because the then chairperson of the department was a former national president of an emergency medicine organization. So the idea in my mind is if I shined for her and got a good letter of recommendation, I'd get into any residency I wanted. Yeah. 
Um, and once I did that rotation, I can still, I still picture the evaluation she wrote for me. It literally says emergency medicine is the choice for me. And that's what uh, I was sold after that. So how, how many years were you actively doing, I guess, EMS before you became a doctor or had that rotation at, at fold, which at the time was a, and still is the reason. I, I got my EMT certification in college in 1993. Um, I, and I went to college here in Mercer County. I went to uh, Trenton state when it was still Trenton state. Um, and I took my EMT at the Pennington first aid squad. Um, uh, back in, uh, 90, 92, 93. And I got my card in 93 and I've maintained it pretty much ever since. Awesome. What, uh, I guess, what was the sticking point for her that had stand out or had stood out for her to write that glaring review and telling you to go into emergency medicine? Ah, uh, um, wow. Uh, I guess it was that I was easy and along with, uh, I, I did good patient care, good patient presentations. Um, um, I listened, I learned. I got to put in a uh, central line. Uh, she supervised me doing that, and uh, I showed no fear. Um, uh, I stitched the two-year-old moving head. Um, again, showed no fear. <laughs> um, I had a, um, um, you know, I'm sure she wasn't the only one that took input. You know, there were other attendings I worked with, um, and one in particular um, that I remember every time I would come in, you know, the kind of guy, you know, everybody has one in whatever the chosen field and the kind of guy who, you know, rides you, um, always busting your chops about something. Um, but somewhere in the back of your mind, you know, he's doing it for the right reason. Right. Well, that was this guy, you know, I'd come <laughs> in and he said, good doctor. So good to see you. Yeah. Bed too. history is physical. Let's go. You know, my coat's not even off yet. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, he asked me a question one day, and I, uh, uh, in full disclosure, I'm an osteopathic physician. I'm a DO, not an MD. Um, he asked me a question, and I gave him an answer that an osteopath would give. Um, had to deal with a landmark on the body. I think it was, how, did, how would you landmark to do a lumbar puncture? And he kind of looked at me funny, and this doctor was also an osteopath. He was a DO. And maybe about a week or two later, we're in the break room, and, uh, no, we weren't in the break room. We went to the break room after I told him this. Um, he says, to, he says something to me about, uh, a certain medical school that I thought I went to. I said, I don't go there. He said, you don't go there. Where do you go? I said, I go to, you know, the New Jersey osteopathic school. He looked at me, and goes, you're a DO student. I said, yeah, you didn't know. He puts his arm around me and says, come here, young doctor. We've got to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Can you clarify what the difference is between an, uh, a DO and an MD? Uh, sure. Um, uh, there's really not much here in, you know, the 21st century. Um, uh, in terms of training, we take additional courses in, uh, osteopathic manipulative medicine or osteopathic practice and principles. Uh, every school is going to have a slightly different ring to it. OMM, OPP, OMT, osteopathic manipulative therapy. Uh, but it's all the same idea of, um, using manual medicine, um, to help in the healing process. Um, way back in the late 1800s, an MD named Andrew Taylor still, um, kind of got tired of treating patients with things like arsenic, um, you know, basically poisons. 
and he was very much into anatomy. And he, you know, studied cadavers and studied skeletons, and his basic idea was if he could manipulate the bones and muscles, which is something you can feel, if he could manipulate the bones and muscles, he could influence the nerves and blood vessels flowing through and around those bones and muscles to improve the body's flow to a target organ uh, and help the body heal itself. So, for example, you know, somebody that might have pneumonia, um, you know, what he would do would be manipulate the bones and muscles of probably the back to improve the blood flow to the lungs in an attempt to get the body to heal itself better. Um, it was a great theory at the time. If you know your medical history, uh, folks like uh, Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur realized if we washed our hands and boiled the surgical instruments in, in hot water and kept them clean and sterile, we could prevent disease. You can probably imagine which, which group's theories took a stronger hold in the House <laughs> of Medicine. Um, but he developed a bit of a following um, and he formed a school out in Kirksville, Missouri, and it has proliferated not quite as much as my allopathic brethren, the MDs, uh, but we still exist. Um, we tend to focus mostly in the primary care fields, and that's mainly because we have a focus on uh, the whole patient. Um, the classic mantra is treat the patient, not the symptom. Right. Um, so for me in the emergency department, you know, I may look more at the psychosocial aspects of somebody's care. Uh, I trained at Newark Beth Israel, the, you know, which is in the inner city. So classic example, um, you know, inner city, food desert, you know, not enough, you know, places to get, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, fixed income. Um, you know, for some of my patients, you know, the choices were rent, McDonald's or medicines, you know, um, and if I'm cognizant of that, then I can tailor my therapies to, you know, best handle a patient like that. Um, that's probably the best example I can give of, of a, a holistic, you know, total patient approach. Um, you do see a lot of osteopaths in the emergency medicine field. Um, you know, we're not technically a primary care field, but we kind of are, <laughs> um, but we are fully licensed to do medicine and surgery in all 50 states and U.S. territories. Um, there are some differences if you go overseas. Uh, I'm Facebook friends with a British osteopath um, who's a little bit more than a chiropractor, but less than what – if I were to go over there, my practice rights would be severely restricted. Got it. Um, but um, as of a couple of years ago, all of the residency programs now in the United States are open to both – DO and MD um, medical school graduates. So it no longer matters. All, all residencies now are dual accredited for both allopathic students, MDs, and osteopathic students. Got it. What, um, I guess, was it your experiences riding on the ambulance that also kind of helped you direct your energy towards emergency medicine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, riding, riding the street. Um, loved it. It was exciting, you know, to, uh, how old was I, you know, 19, 20 years old, you know, let's, let's be honest with each other. You, you've ridden the, you've ridden the truck too, the lights, the sirens, um, <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of excitement, you know, um, <clears throat> but I remember my first, 
you know, florid congestive heart failure call. We were dispatched for difficulty breathing. And there's this, I forget if it was a man or a woman now, lying on the floor, you know, guppy breathing, bringing up pink frothy sputum with every breath. And she's literally drowning in her own fluids. Um, and I'm like, yeah, wow. I guess that's difficulty breathing too. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get much more of a I, you know, classic I never thought call of it that. that. Yeah, exactly. That was actually, that was my first oropharyngeal airway insertion. I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, a lot's lot's changed. I mean, I've been riding on the ambulance for about the last 28 years or so. So we've kind of had a lot of similar experiences, at least on the pre-hospital end of things. And and since you've become a doctor, um, you've kind of worn a lot of hats, at least in the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, one of which being you know, medical director for a lot of the local squads and, and the area. Would you mind kind of elaborating what your role is in as being medical director for our local squads? Oh, oh, sure. Um, you know, uh, as a as a medical director, my my role is to provide the medical oversight to uh, a EMS agency, um, and that EMS agency may be a fire department too. Um, but in terms of that, I would review charts, um, making sure that, you know, patient care is being done appropriately. Um, a lot, a lot of what I do is education. There are a number of skills that are, um, allowed to the basic life support level for EMTs that require uh, a medical director to train and, um, do quality assurance on, um, EMS agencies now, now give epinephrine auto injectors for, uh, severe allergic reactions, anaphylaxis. They can administer naloxone, the, uh, antidote for an opiate overdose. Um, we're now allowed to use our, our EMTs can now use their brains and decide which person needs full spinal mobilization and who doesn't. That's the, the longboard and the collar stuff. That's a big change from um, when I started. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, game, uh, truly a game changer. Um, it's a shame. I trained, I trained one agency. It's a, a private ambulance service down in Ocean County. Um, um, and unfortunately, um, they see a lot of geriatric patients, and the cutoff is age 65. So they don't actually get to employ that protocol very often. <laughs> um, but uh, there's that. Um uh, if you know anybody that has sleep apnea, the CPAP machine, um, that is now a therapy that we've been using at the advanced life support level since 1993. Um, and probably, uh, probably close to 10 years now we've had it at the, the basic life support level. Um, that also requires medical direction. And the most recent is, um, albuterol nebulizers. Um, and that is, slowly um, uh, being added on in various uh, spots. I only have one agency right now that was able to get done uh, basically because COVID hit and, um, you know, we were all on lockdown and I couldn't go out and train anybody. (laughs) Uh, Since you brought it up, what is, if any changes to your role, what have been the biggest changes to your roles um, with the facilities that you work at regarding COVID? I mean, obviously it's, been a significant impact. And I know it sounds like a kind of ridiculous question, but 
you know, we, we got lucky here in New Jersey. I mean, my colleagues in North Jersey were, were, you know, drowning in patients here in the, the central end of the state. We, we were very lucky. Um, I saw a couple of, um, um, posts in an email group I'm in from the American College of Emergency Physicians, one of the specialty societies for ER docs. Um, and it was a post of a post somebody else put up. It was a critical care doc from Italy. And I will tell you the thing that scared me the most was having to look a patient's family in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I don't have a ventilator for your loved one. Hold their hand. There's nothing more I can do they're likely going to die before they get upstairs to the ICU. That scared the bejesus out of me um, to have to ration care like that. And yeah. we are so lucky that it didn't happen. Um, did we, did we have uh, an uptick of critical patients? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've seen, I saw a lot more sicker patients that I'm, I'm used to seeing um, but also a lot of people decided I'm not going to the emergency room because they didn't want to get COVID. Um, maybe a good thing, maybe not. Um, you know, people with chronic medical conditions that decompensate, they certainly need to come in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, um, I think that's one of the things that I notice is from the, my volunteering aspect, our call volume for the not feeling well, the the typical, I guess, run-of-the-mill emergency calls that we've had dramatically dropped for a good three months or so. They're slowly climbing yeah. back now, but there was definitely a, a marked decline in, in those quote-unquote typical calls for service. Um, the One of the big comparisons that we hear kind of trumpeted around is, and I don't agree with this at all, but it's it's a lot like the flu. Given the fact that you've been in medicine for as long as you had, you, you've treated the flu, and now you've treated people with COVID, what are some of the, I guess, the bigger differences in the presentations of the flu versus COVID-19? The majority of the flu that you see, it's the flu. You know, you feel run down, you feel achy, um, uh, coffee, stuffy head have a fever, need to take your medicine so you can rest. There you go, the commercial from the 80s. <laughs> um, um, COVID, uh, you know, very similar, but and it ran the gamut. Uh, I saw a fair number of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic people. I admitted a guy, and I thought he should have probably been in the ICU, and the uh, admitting team said, no, we're going to put him on the step-down floor. Um, I had him on BiPAP, um, and he was still probably breathing 35 times a minute, which is fast. Um, he was dead in 12 hours. Jesus. Yeah. I, you know, I had a 40 year old guy that was, um, diagnosed 24 hours before got rolled into to my shop in cardiac arrest. 24 hours. You know, 24 hours. Now, flu doesn't do that. Flu has made some sick people. I have seen some sick people with flu, and mostly children. Um, an 18-month-old uh, 
that we diagnosed with influenza pneumonia um, that was so sick, had to be hand ventilated with a bag valve mask, even though they were intubated from the shop where I work in Mercer County all the way up to New Brunswick. And when they got to New Brunswick, um, they couldn't even keep the kid on the ventilator. They had to do ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's basically a heart-lung bypass machine. Wow. Um, yeah, I, that's probably the sickest flu I've ever seen. But that's rare. Right. You know, that's rare. Um, I have seen, you know, you've, you, COVID you could really classify into one of four categories. Completely asymptomatic. Well, we knew what to do with those people. Um, you know, go home, lock the door, stay inside. Um, um, mild symptomatology. We know what to do with those people. Same thing. Go home, lock the door, stay inside. You've probably heard this term, the happy hypoxic, <laughs> um, which is somebody that looks well, but when you put them on the cardiac monitor, their oxygen levels are... 50, 60, 70%. Normal is 90 and above. Jesus. Um, but they're tolerating it. Those are the happy hypoxics. Well, we knew what to do with them. Give them supplemental oxygen and admit them to the hospital. Um, and then there was the people that were, you know, unhappy hypoxics <laughs> who were, you know, sick and, you know, crashing. And we knew what to do with them, you know, put them on life support, you know, the ventilator and, um, you know, start plenty of fluids and, um, you know, we, we, we made a lot of changes. Initially steroids were a no, no. Now dexamethasone for somebody on supplemental oxygen is the right thing to do. Um, there was the whole hydroxychloroquine debacle. Um, you know, we went through, you know, study after study and finally, no, it doesn't work. Um, we've got rendesimir now. Um, which is actually an antiviral for Ebola, um, but it is working for uh, COVID. Which is a good thing. I mean, at least we're we're kind of reinventing, so to speak, or, or replacing some things that we know work for other things and other ailments Absolutely. to improve. Um, I mean, we 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 started out doing classic in in ICU critical care medicine, doing classic. Um, ARDS therapies. Um, ARDS is uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, different ventilator parameters and um, uh, whatnot, and you know people were dying, and we had to rethink that a little bit. So we, everybody from the ER to the ICU, we've all had to, um, you know, adopt to. Um, continuing changes in order to, to treat this. Um, what we know now compared to what we knew back in March is a world of difference. And that's, that's the power of modern medicine, right? Right. I mean, this thing was discovered in December and here we are. We're not, we're not even at a year yet. We already know it's, it's genetic structure. We already know it's genome. We already know that the mutations that it's, been getting since it's been bopping around the globe are not all that significant. We know what those mutations are. Um, you know, when I was in when high school, it was a big deal that we did gel electrophoresis and actually isolated the you know, gob of DNA out of a cell. 
and it was, you know, basically, you know, uh, a little piece of goop that we wrapped around a, a glass um, stirring rod. You know, Sister Karen was like, yep, that's DNA. You just isolate it there. <laughs> <laughs> and now we can take that piece of DNA and get to the genetic structure so, in less than in less than a year. And that was, that's amazing science. It is. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I'm, I'm happy that we've seen such great advances with, with our sciences. You know, the initial thought process is a, a cure or even a vaccine or, or something to, to improve the treatment and care of patients would be, you know, anywhere from a year to two years out. So it's nice that we can take the information that we know on other viruses and, and pathogens and things like that to kind of adapt to Absolutely. the way that we've addressed it and convert it to the learning information that we have from COVID. I mean, like you said, it's only been not even a full year yet. What is, I guess, the the biggest trend or how close do you think, given all the, the rapid speed at which we're discovering things and, and how it's mutating. Um, what do you, would you say would be a good timeline for, I mean, I know that's kind of grasping at straws and a huge assumption on your part, but you're kind of in the middle of, of the, of everything. And you mean you're talking the vaccines? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, the, the shortest the shortest vaccine we've ever developed was four years, and that was mumps. Took four years, and, and by developed, meaning from isolation of the genome to vaccine in hand. Four years. Again, we're, we're now looking at 18 to 24 months for a vaccine. Right. Uh, extraordinary accomplishment in medicine. Um, you know, um, we are doing things we've never done before. Um the Moderna vaccine and somebody else's vaccine are mRNA viruses. They're, so the vaccine you get, you get a modified genetic material of the virus. It looks like um, the uh, protein. Um, it, it looks like the, the RNA of the virus. It, um, that's coded for the, the so-called spike protein. Um, our body makes the spike protein look alike and we develop antibodies to it. Um, we've talked about it for years. We've never actually done a vaccine that way. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, um, who is it? Somebody's vaccine is on hold um, here in the U.S., but they're doing it worldwide. And that's also like the Moderna and the other one, which is a two-stage vaccine. So... You get your first shot, and then a month later, you get your second shot. The J&J one uh, was a single-shot deal, but they just put their trial on hold um, because they had one patient um, that wound up with a very weird syndrome. I, I, I don't know the, the details. This came out in you know conventional press. It wasn't a, a medical source. Um, but the J&J one is on hold as of today. Um is there anything you know, coming out of Italy with methods of treatment that you guys are using? Um, well, uh, you know, they, you know, they, as you know, they were hit hard and they resorted back to something we used, you know, 50, 60 years ago. That's the whole convalescent plasma, um, um, which is, 
you know, somebody who's had the disease, we get them to donate blood. We spin down the blood into its components. The plasma, the liquid portion of the blood, will be rich in all kinds of antibodies, including their antibodies they made to COVID-19. And you administer that to a patient to get them antibodies. Well, the next logical step from that is you take that antibody and you start making copies of it. Um, you clone it. And we have monoclonal antibodies for a lot of different uh, treatments. And we now have monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19. That's what actually Trump got. Um, now, he got a little bit more of an experiment, but... <laughs> You know, we, we know what we know the antibody works in the convalescent plasma form. There's no reason to think that a monoclonal antibody, um, which is just the, the antibody to the spike protein, is not going to work. Right. Do you so uh, that should that, that that should that should be more widespread relatively soon. Got it. From what you've seen and what you've learned over the last handful of months, you what's your thoughts on the next three of five months over the winter? Do you project a, a huge spike or just a kind of the expected bump up with the cold weather? Uh, I think we'll see an increase because of the, because of the cold weather, you know, um, we know this virus doesn't like heat. And the weird thing is, you know, why do we get this explosion in, in the South during the summer? Um, I can't really explain that one, but we know this virus doesn't like, doesn't like heat. Um, it thrives in the cold. Um, It'll, it, it thrives in um, the conditions that the cold creates, which is basically everybody, you know, bottled up indoors, um, which is, you know, how most, you know, respiratory viruses spread during the winter, whether it be um, influenza, the common cold, um, any number of, of viral illnesses that cause respiratory symptoms or even bacteria like strep throat and sinusitis, you know? We've, uh... So it's hard to say. I, I, I think we'll see somewhat of an uptick, but it's hard to say. Are we going to see numbers like we saw in, you know, April, May? I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I will say this. Um, if things go with the flu, like they went in Australia and New Zealand, we'll have a very mild flu season. Um, which will be a huge help to us. Um, you know, the question comes up, though, did they have a mild flu season because they just had a mild flu going around or because wearing masks and social distancing and um, quarantining, you know, self-isolation are good for flu as well as COVID? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that was one of the big questions, and obviously you have people that are on both sides of the fence for some ungodly reason when, you know, the science clearly shows the distancing, the wearing the masks, it's, it's all for the betterment of your, your, your neighbor, so to speak. The, uh, Absolutely. It's all, it's all basic public health practices. And it's, it, to me, it's common sense. And uh, maybe it's common sense to me because of being in an, in a, the emergency medicine environment for the last almost 30 years. The, um, Obviously, being that you've had exposure and, and ideas how to treat, you've developed policies and procedures for, for treating COVID. Do you think that that is also going to be a big component in, I guess, mitigating the severity of, of the cases? Not necessarily the cases level that you'll see, but how you manage and control the flow of patients, I guess. 
You mean using the, the public health practices, masking and social distancing? No, I'm talking about in as far as treating the patients as they come in. You know, you have a better plan per se because you you know what works and you know what doesn't. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, again, it goes back to um, you know basic public health uh, prevention practices. Hey, doctors are notoriously bad at hand washing. Right now, uh, you know, uh, nurses are not that far behind us. Um, that fundamentally has to change, and it has changed. Um, people are much more cognizant now of um, protecting themselves uh, and therefore protecting other people than we, were, than we ever were before. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, you know, I think, you know, some of that same stuff, um, we'll go into, um, mitigation. Certainly we know now not to rush and intubate somebody, um, and put them on life support. Um, have you seen a lot um, of patients come off of the ventilator or is it the typical experience that I, or my understanding of usually when you put a person on a ventilator, the odds of them coming off in, in a good, because their healing is, uh, usually lower. Um, great question. Wrong doc. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm on the front line. I put the tube in. I'm right. generally not the guy that takes the tube out. <laughs> so, I wasn't sure if you'd, if you'd heard um, any feedback on that. Um, there were, uh, a mixed bag. Um, you know, we had, you know, a couple of lingering people on the ventilator for weeks on end. And then there was, you know, quite a few that they were able to extubate relatively quickly. Um, there were those that, that died, unfortunately, I think our, our worst day at my, my shop, there were six deaths in the ICU in a 24 hour period. Um, um, bottom line is the COVID-19 epidemic is clearly nothing to be taken lightly and you need to do what you can to to keep yourself safe and and others safe. uh, One of my colleagues, one of my colleagues that works with me in the emergency room. He started life as a surgeon 50 years ago. Um, now he's in the, now he works at ER. You know, he's been in practice for 50 years. He's never seen anything like this. And yeah, okay. He's in practice for 50 years. He, he wasn't around for the 1918 Spanish flu. Um, but he was around for the 68 Hong Kong influenza, um, epidemic. Um, he was around for, you know, H1N1 in 09, that was. Um, you know, we got lucky with the first SARS in 03. It never really went anywhere. We got even luckier with uh, MERS. You know, it's called Middle East Respiratory Distress Syndrome because <laughs> it's pretty much in the Middle East, and that's pretty much it. Um, but, yeah, you know, he's been in practice 50 years. Never in his lifetime has he seen something like this in, in medicine. Aside from this, you know, being, here's a guy that here's a guy that's operated before CAT scanners were around. <laughs> long, long time of having handsome people. Um, yeah. Speaking about you know some of the previous potentials for large scale biological incidences, I guess to call it. Um, what do you What do you see has been the biggest component for keeping it or keeping those instances under control? Was it task force that were put in place that are no longer in existence now? Something along those lines? 
or people listening uh, you know, to what the doctors I, are telling I, them I, to do? I, 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 I read the, the recent New England Journal of Medicine uh, uh, editorial uh, regarding how the U.S. handles the COVID-19 outbreak. And by the U.S., I mean, I don't mean the boots on the ground. I mean, you know, the administration, you know, in Washington. Um, no doubt. The, the CDC at one point was the premier public health response agency in the world. And, you know, uh, Tony Fauci's great. Don't get me wrong. But why am I hearing from Tony Fauci, who is a researcher for the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases? Why isn't Robert Redfield a household name, the director of the CDC? It's a good I, question. I, yeah, you know, and they know each other. You know, at that at, at, at a level of Fauci, you know, a, a guy yeah. who's, you know, head of a, a National Health Institute of Health Institute, um, who's an ID doc by training. Redfield's an ID doc by training. Their world is small, all right. They all know each other. Right. Um, uh, the principal deputy director, Elizabeth something or other, I can't remember her name. Same thing. She's an ID doc. And they all know each other. <laughs> you know, at that level, the world is very small. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, the New England Journal article said it right. You know, this, the the CDC, their their response capabilities were were decimated by the administration. You know, and, and why? Um, and I've been there. I've been to uh, the the Royal Campus in Atlanta. Um, oddly enough, I was there representing my specialty society, the ACOEP as the osteopathic emergency physician expert in the room on developing EMS plans for a pandemic influenza. I guess, how long ago and was I that? Said, oh God, that was probably about a dozen years ago. Um, so well over 10 years ago, it was at least the thought was put in the heads of, of the higher ups that say, Hey, we should have some policies and procedures in place in case something like this happens, not for really in case of when something happens, it's, but when it happens and absolutely, they absolutely. were kind of all thrown you know, away to the side. Most, most of our pandemic planning has been in terms of an influenza pandemic. Um, but you know, influenza is a respiratory spread virus as is COVID-19 uh, two degree Ebola is respiratory spread. I mean, it's spread through a lot of other ways, but there's right. a respiratory component. You know, it may have been labeled the 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 pandemic, you know, flu plan, but oh, you know what? It's kind of a, just a pandemic uh, emerging infectious disease plan, if you really think about it. You know, taking that all hazards approach, you know, to it. Um, you know, so some of those lessons learned, I'm sure, were were uh, uh, applied. Um, you know, there was a lot of out of the box thinking in in other places, not so much here in the Mercer County area. My colleagues up in, in North Jersey had their ORs as ICU overflow. Jeez. They were using the anesthesia machines as ventilators. Um because there was there was no need for operations. Um you know, there wasn't really much surgery going on. So yeah. they were using the anesthesia machines as ventilators because I just didn't have enough. And that's, I think that's one of the things that I get the most frustrated with is the objective facts that, you know, if things were handled a little more 
expeditiously taken more seriously out of the gate as opposed to being downplayed and, and delayed, I think we would have been a, in a much better position than we are now. Absolutely. No doubt. I mean, if, if, if borders were closed sooner, um, if, you know, isolation were, were done sooner, um, things would have been very different. Me personally, I, if I were, if I, if it were my show, I'd have probably closed the borders. And if it did get out, you know, and we still had it in the U S you know, we were seeing cases, I'd have probably locked the country down for three weeks. No movement. You can't move up. You can't move down. You can't go to the grocery store. Everything's closed except your medical facilities. Need food? Hi, National Guard. Give me 20,000 MREs. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I mean, I, I understand and I wholeheartedly agree with that's the, probably the right way to address the situation. The problem is, is and it's, it's clearly evident now that people can't even wear a mask, that people just won't listen. People are just by nature and their desire for the freedoms that they have, whether they believe more freedoms than they actually have or not. Um, you know, I, I look at it like this. You know, the founding fathers may not have understood what we're going through here, but they knew what smallpox was. You know, would they get what we're doing here in terms of, um, uh, you know, making decisions for the betterment of the whole? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they would have gotten that, having understood what a disease like smallpox would do and did do to, you know, Washington and his Continental Army. I'm a little amateur historian. <laughs> my, my, my now 14-year-old, when she was knee-high to a grasshopper, got interested in the Revolutionary War, so... I am very much up on, you know, that time period, you know, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the whole nine, and, and in full disclosure, I am an elected official. Um, I'm a elected fire commissioner, and I, I, I really got to hand it to my fellow commissioners. Um, um, you know, we always, you always talk about it, but you never really think about it, and now that I'm in the role of an elected official, I work for the taxpayer, Yeah, uh, you know? Um, and I, I, I get that more now than I ever did. I mean, there's, there's tons of resources out there you can order from the CDC or, um, the FDA or the NIH and you know, it's your, you pay for it, your tax dollars at work, right? right? You know, you go on the road, you see the signs, you know, your tax dollars being well spent or your tax dollars at work. Um, I've spent those tax dollars, <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in my role. I, I, I get it. Um, um, so, you know, when, you know, to, to, to the naysayers, the, to the people that, uh, that cry, you know, you know, Liberty, uh, you know, I look at what the founding fathers did and I would say, you know what, they would get what we're doing because yeah. they understood what a disease could do to a population. Right. And the one thing that I kind of like to throw out when people scream that, you know, you're violating their right by making them wear a mask is go back to, I believe it's Jacobson v. Massachusetts from 1906. It was a Supreme Court yes. ruling yes. basically stating that the care and concern and the greater health concerns over the general population outweighs your individual right. And Absolutely. Thank you. I, I read that case. <laughs> and, and 
you know, every time somebody shows throws up, oh, I, you know, it's it's personal choice. No, it's 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 really not. It's it's a matter of you not, really not being an ignorant fool and following what you are justly told to do by your government. Your government has the right to exercise and enact certain restrictions that you know they feel are going to have a great impact on decreasing the severity of something. In this case, it's COVID-19. So, I mean, I, I also can see the argument of, you know, well, why do we have to do it for so long? There is such an economic uh, impact to it. And, and there is. There, there is clearly the the financial aspect and, and where towns and landlords are going to get their money from if people aren't working. But human life is a little more valuable than that. And, and we can deal with the other stuff later. I agree. I agree. I mean, once you get the disease and you know, we're, we're, we're kind of there. We've had a recent little uptick, but, um, uh, you know, we've, we've reopened to a degree. We're now in the stage of, you know, at least some indoor stuff is now open again. Um, so it's, it's getting under control. You know, that now is the point where, you know, individuals need, can, can ask of themselves um, and put the risk on themselves. You know, right. um, you know, I haven't gone to visit, you know, my, you know, my, I take, haven't taken the kids to see grandma and grandpa um, because of this. And, you know, my parents are miserable be, because of, well, you know what? Yes, they could still get COVID, but they are depressed and miserable and I want to cheer them up by letting them see their grandkids. That's an individual choice, right? You know, you've made the decision that the mental health aspect of this disease needs to be treated, um, over, you know, the public health aspect of it. Right. Um, at that point, but, but again, you've got to be at the level where, you know, it isn't, you know, mass pandemonium, uh, and being spread like wildfire. You've got to be at a state where we are now. Um, where things are, are relatively controlled. Yeah. Um, I think whether you agree or not with anything and everything that our current governor Murphy does, it's evident that his decisions and the, the choices he's made this year were clearly the right thing to do due to the fact that, yeah, we had our initial uptick and, and we were kind of hit hard at the beginning of all this, but the policies that he put in place and the restrictions he put down clearly were the right thing to do when you look at the numbers throughout the country and where New Jersey ranked typically, you know, in the forefront of top of the list is doing the best job of, of controlling everything. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Now, yes, you know, we made some mistakes, you know, look at the long-term care um, situation. You know, we, we, even though he did a lot of things right, we still didn't get it all right. Um, that's expected though. I mean, hindsight 2020 and, and, you know, it's, oh, absolutely. it's a novel, you know, novel thing for, it's called a novel thing for a reason. It's, it's, it's new. We're, we need to have right. some time to see what it is and what it's doing to, to make the right decisions. And you're not going to get everything right on the first try. Oh no, absolutely not. But they clearly, and, you know, it, and I, and I think you'll see some improvements in what goes on in, in long-term care because of this. Um, you know, we, we've, we've, we've worked the street. We've responded to long-term care facilities. Um, you know, there's some that, okay, no problem. Others. There's others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we won't go there. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking about the long, long-term care things, long-term of 
possible side effects. I mean, from what I understand, I, I spoke to a respiratory therapist a few weeks ago, um, and he brought up the fact that they've seen a kind of a transition from being predominantly a pulmonary thing to having vascular effects. Do you, have you seen any of that transition? Yeah, you know, that's, that, that's the interesting thing. You know, we, we started out, this was a, um, um, I'm blanking on the terms. Um, started as a, as a, as a respiratory disease, um, or a respiratory epithelial disease, meaning the lining of the respiratory tract. Um, and that's really its point of entry. Now we know it is not only a respiratory epithelial disease, but it's a respiratory endothelial disease, which gets into all the vascular complications, um, of this, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're, again, we're, we're constantly learning. learning what this, what this virus does. Um, you know, in the early days of, you know, abdominal symptomatology was now nah, nobody gets abdominal symptomatology. Now abdominal symptomatology is, is, you know, a very real possibility with it. <laughs> I think that's kind of one of the things that I, I think a lot of people are waiting to see is what the long-term effects for people that either had a, the asymptomatic end of the spectrum you're talking about or the, the really severe stuff that they were I, able I, to I, Yeah, the, the long-term effects you're going you're gonna to see in people that had the disease, um, particularly those with a little bit more severe illness. Um, that's, where, that's, where you'll, that's where you need to look at for, you know, what are the long-term effects of having had the COVID-19 infection. It, it's definitely going to be an interesting uh, next five to ten years because I think, would you say that's a... Absolutely. Good time frame then. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the jury's not out on that yet. You know, again, we're not even a year into this. Yeah, I think there's the, the amount of information that doctors and, and everybody has learned over the last six months has been probably very few things would outweigh the amount of information gathered in six months than any other period in the last probably 10, 15 years. I've probably shredded a small tree in journal articles I've printed out. <laughs> um, and I've probably read about a twig of that. <laughs> well, it's kind of, it seems like with, you know, with the IT field, things change very rapidly. I'm guessing that you guys were getting information on Monday that was pretty much changed by Wednesday. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, I, I listen to a lot of, you may have heard of him, Z-Dog MD. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of Z-Dog. Um, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I got behind in listening to some of my Z-Dog stuff, and um, I was, you know, it was probably May, and I was listening to the stuff he put out in March, having listened to the stuff already he put out in April. I was <laughs> going through my backlog of email, and, you know, he's saying stuff that we know is wrong now, right. <laughs> you know? Um the thing I like uh, about him is he's he's puts out for the most part. I mean, from what I've seen, pretty accurate and factual stuff. But he puts it in a easily digestible terms for a layperson. Oh, absolutely! But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, he he breaks it down um, to to the user level, and he gets he gets guests on that can break it down to to that level. Uh, huge fan of one of his guests, Paul Offit director of the vaccine research center down at chop. Um, 
that's honestly where I got a lot of my vaccine information from was listening to him speak, not only on Z-Dog, but um, uh, JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, um, their editor-in-chief, Howard Bachner, is a pediatrician by training. He does YouTube videos, you know, conversation with Dr. Bachner. He's had, he's had Redfield. He's had Elizabeth, whatever her name is, the principal deputy director. Um, he had, uh, he's had off it two or three times. Um, um, I think the ability off, it's probably the most vocal of the vaccine people out there. The guy who's the, probably the nation's expert is not quite so vocal. His name is Peter Hotep. He's the director of the um, Institute of Tropical Medicine. I believe that's at Baylor College in Texas. Um, but the two of those guys together are, are phenomenal resources of vaccines. Offit does sit on the vaccine review committee for the FDA. So any of these vaccines, whether it's J&J, Moderna, will go before um, – that committee for the scientific review right. and Bachner interviewed Steve Hahn, I believe his name is, who is the director of the, the administrator of the FDA, um, who's a radiologist by training. Um, little odd. You'd think the yeah. head of the FDA <laughs> would be like a form D, you yeah. know? Um, but okay. Um, um, you know, this, you know, you've probably heard about the emergency youth authorization stuff, but an EUA does not change the scientific review. Right. Um, but we do know that the FDA has kind of kowtowed to the administration a little bit to approve things like um, uh, uh, they were one of the ones that gave an EUA for hydroxychloroquine on honestly some bad science. Um, there was a, a little blurb about one of the H2 blockers for a while. It might've been Pepsid, um, that the FDA kind of shoved down a few people's throats before smarter people said, no, this is not <laughs> the right thing. Um, I think <clears throat> one of the important things, especially right now is you need to have people that really know what they're talking about and be able to break down that highly scientific information to easily digestible and understandable not i don't want to say sound bites because i i hate sound bites but to put it in a, into context and frame it in a way that's easy for people who don't know the the science and be able to understand agreed it agreed and then apply it and i and i think our biggest champion there has been fauci um no he he's been in the forefront of this whole thing um he's kind of been the face of it <laughs> Whether yeah, he wanted he, it or he, not, he, he, whether he want, exactly whether he wanted to or not, he's become the face of it. Fauci's been interviewed at least twice by uh, by Howard Bachner from from JAMA, um, and you know he he's the editor in chief, so you know he's another one that you know super high level of you know medical leadership. You know they all know each other, um, right. kind of thing. <laughs> small small world. <laughs> The uh, just to kind of shift things off of uh, off the seriousness of COVID, you've uh, we've worked together, we've we've taught together. You've got quite the extensive background. It's like every time I talk to you, you're trying to learn something new. What uh, I guess what has been some of the more fun training components that you've uh, you've done? Uh, um. 
kind of put you on the spot there. Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is um, I took the National Association of EMS Educators Level 1 Instructor course. Um, it's basically a course to teach how to educate adults, but all the examples are ambulances. Uh, it's a simple way to put it. Um, but the but the guy that put it together is a is a paramedic named Chris Nolette. He's a PhD, um, runs a training academy out in California somewhere. He can probably count on one hand the number of NEMC. Uh, that's what everybody calls National Association of EMS Educators, NEMC. Um, you can probably count on one hand the number of NEMC Level One courses he has not taught personally. Wow. Um, yeah, and I've seen him twice. He was he gave the keynote at one of the state EMS conferences down in AC. Um, he taught the course I was in. Um, um, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal. You know, an educator's educator. Um, hands down, that's the best course I've ever had. Um, and you've you've you you've taught like you said you've taught with me. You've been in classes that I've taught. Um, I've, I've fallen in love with, with education. I think if I had to do all over again, I might be a high school teacher. Um, um, I think Mark, yeah, that, you know, Mark Marlin, who's the, the head of the MD one foundation, um, chair of the EMS council. When he first took over chair, he made everybody introduce themselves. And if they weren't a doctor, what would they do? And a good, another mentor of mine, Al Sacchetti said, you know, he, probably, you know, have an Italian restaurant somewhere. So when it came to me, I said, um, a lot of people said they would want to work for Al. I said, I'd probably be a high school teacher by day and a sous chef for Al at night. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that was probably the, the, the best course I, I've ever taken. I've had some phenomenal training out there. I've taken, I, as, as you know, I've been to the International School of Tactical Medicine where they take <laughs> medical people like me and teach us to think like a SWAT team. When you, um, uh, when I saw you after you took that class, you had this glow about you. You were so giddy and happy that you were in that <laughs> class. <laughs> hey, I, I got, I got physician continuing medical education credits, and I went to a shooting range. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, you're. Uh, I shot an, I, I shot an MP5. You know, um, I've been to a course called the Difficult Airway Course put on by a guy named Ron Walls. He's a ER doc at um, Brigham and Women's in Boston, part, part of Harvard Medical School. Right. You know, he couldn't get into Harvard. Now he teaches there. America's a great country. <laughs> it's, 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 it's truly, I learned life-saving techniques, how to manage somebody's airway. You know, I had a patient that got brought into my shop, victim of a house fire, couldn't be intubated, airway all swollen, She's asystolic, so we know where this is eventually going to wind up. But, you know, she's not going to make it. But I look at my staff. I said, everybody, this is just an exercise in the ER dictum of no one dies without an airway. And that was my first surgical crike. Wow. Um, so, yeah, life-saving training. Um, I'll be taking, um, in November, I'll be renewing my ACLS for the experienced provider. Uh, this is a little gem that somebody's way smarter than me at the AHA put together. Um, it's for 
folks like myself who've been certified by the American Heart Association and ACLS since, you know, the beginning of time. My first <laughs> ACLS card was, was in, was in 93. I got as a medical student. Um, and yeah, maybe a year went by where I hadn't renewed it and then renewed it a year later. But for the most part, I've had ACLS certification since 1993. Um, they now have a course for people like me who could, you know, t- you know, close our eyes and, and pass the class. Right. Um, um, you come in, you do the written test, you do your CPR and AED station, you do your ACLS mega code where they test you out on your ACLS skills. Right. If you pass all that, congratulations, done. Here's your ACLS card. You <laughs> may now sit for the rest of the class. Oh, wow. The rest of the class, the rest of the eight hour day is all the stuff in the back of the ACLS textbook when you actually got a textbook, not the book they give you now. The book they give you now is just nothing but a skills book. Um, but the ACLS textbook had all this cool stuff in it that you never got to, like, you know, lightning strikes, electrocutions, um, toxicology, um, CHF, AFib. AFib now, the answer to the AFib question in ACLS is seek expert consultation <laughs> in, in regular ALS. They cool. took it out of regular ALS. They put it in the, in, in the advanced ACLS course. Um, the last time I took this course, it was at – uh, a training institution and I'll, I'll name names. So you'll, you know, you'll know where I took it. But in my class was Andrew Grannon, um, superstar paramedic who goes on EMS competition teams, uh, Greg Smith, um, you know, the training center coordinator for the training center. Right. Um, you know, he's a, you know, we're all students in the class together. You know, these are, you know, incredible. Fishburg might have been there too. Um, you know, all all incredibly smart people in this room. So, and that's what makes that class great. Is you know, the 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 more smart people there are in that class, the better the class runs. Well, but the amount of experience of the people that you just named. I mean, you're you're talking about two hundred plus years worth of EMS and medical experience. Exactly. <laughs> so. um I, uh, I've, I've stolen you for an hour of your time, which given your, uh, your position is obviously crucial and I greatly appreciate that. Anything that you would like to plug anyone, anything that people can find you to read up anything that you've done? Um, you know, just read, you mentioned you know, what to read, just read, you know, educate yourself. I read a newspaper, I, you know, I, I subscribe to a written newspaper. I got the Trenton Times. Why do I subscribe to a newspaper? I read something every day. Um, and, you know, personal thing, you know, you turn on, you know, the, the talking heads on TV. You know, the most of the press now is a witting accomplice to the shenanigans that go on in Washington. And it's a that, nice that way doesn't matter it. who's... Who, Yep. And and that doesn't matter who's in the white house, you know, you know, whether it's, whether it's this one or that one. Um, we all know that there are shenanigans that go on in, in Washington and and the press is now a witting accomplice to it all. Um, but it says something to put it in actual newsprint. Um, so I, you know, that's something I do, you know, read something every day, you know, 
you know, my, my now 14 year old, when she was four, I read all kinds of books on, you know, mostly the battle of Trenton and then, you know, the rest of the revolution. <laughs> um, that's how I became a little, you know, revolutionary war historian, you know, um, there's definitely you know, a lot of history around yourself. here. Oh, in this area, it's fantastic. Um, you know, um, you can't beat it. Um, I was, I, I took her over to Washington crossing historic park, which is the Pensy side. Right. And, you know, they had the tour guide and we're standing in, um, the, the, the little, you know, pub that, you know, was there that night. And this guy's reading something, you know, some letter that they recovered from the site. And he goes, I can tell you that Washington either wrote that letter in this room or that room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> have you, uh, have you guys been over to, to Monmouth battlefield to where Monmouth battlefield over, uh, freehold. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, best preserved, uh, revolutionary war battlefield outside of Saratoga. Yeah. It, I mean, um, it's like I said, it's, it, the history we have around here between Trenton and Hamilton and Princeton and Washington crossing. It's, it's just phenomenal. But, uh, it is. It is. I still have to. I still have to get them to to the old barracks. Um. <laughs> yeah, I have to get there myself. So, all right. Well, on that note, uh, again, I greatly appreciate yep. all the time you gave us, and obviously, oh, you're the wealth of information and and your knowledge is paramount to anything that I know for anybody. Um, I will uh, say again, thank you, and have a good night. You're very welcome. Thank you. And good night. Stay safe. Stay well. You too, sir. Um, yeah. yeah. You know what? Something just popped in my head. Um, as, as, as an EMS provider yourself, um, I think I, I've said this to a number of different folks. Um, and so for all of you out there listening to this that are in the medical profession or the EMS profession, um, I think we'll all agree that 9-11 was our defining moment as EMS public safety professionals. Um, for the, the medical side of my career, this pandemic is the defining moment for, for the medical side of my career. Um, and to, to those of you out there that um, are in the, the medical profession, you know, stay abreast of the ever-changing guidelines, hold your heads high, Keep doing what you're doing. Keep yourself safe. And we're going to show the world that we're going to get through this. I love that thought process. <laughs> Thank you again very uh, much. You're welcome, Mike. Stay safe. Stay well, my friend. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon and send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.